Welcome back to RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan, and joining me tonight is my co-host, Gabby. Hey, guys. No Kate this week. We hope she'll be back with us next week. But in the meantime, we have a guest we're very excited to welcome to the show. Our guest this week is the proprietor of Twitter's No Context Succession, or at No Context Royco account, a major online hub for discussion, news, and memes about the series. A day one fly guy herself, she may be more responsible at a grassroots level than any other individual for spreading the good word about succession and helping it to become the water cooler phenomenon it is today. By extension, she is also to blame for all the most irritating media personalities in your feed watching the show and delivering their bewildering takes about it every week. So here to be held accountable for her actions is a longtime friend of the Roy cast, Anna Golez. Hey, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me. That was an incredible intro. And I, I'm, I'm ready to testify. <laughs> it's so good to have you, Anna. Yeah, you've been, uh, you've been generous with your uh, account's massive following and boosting the Roycast over the last couple seasons. You are sort of the Medici of our podcast, our patron. Um, but uh, it's been, it's been great to uh, see some of your thoughts about the show, and it's, uh, it's good to finally, you know, as we like to say on the podcast, to connect. You know. Yes, I'm a huge fan, so I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm I'm always happy to promote you guys. Very kind. Thank you so much, Anna. So yeah, I mean, what has we've talked a little bit about the trajectory from season one to now of like trying to get your friends to watch the show, trying to boost the show, and now we're at a point where it's like you know there's almost this oversaturation. Um, what has that? been like in terms of how it's played out on your account yeah it's been quite a ride compared to season one when there were like i was happy to hit 100 followers you know and i was just (laughs) posting for like the 20 people watching it and compared to now when um the moment i post something it gets so many likes replies retweets and then my dms are a mess because i keep them open for requests um, I yeah, can't believe you still and, take requests. That's very generous. I don't. I to anyone who has sent me a request and you're listening, I'm sorry if I don't reply. But I swear I've seen them all. I just I can't reply anymore. But I I know every request. I just, I try to get them out. This is and this is ske- an unbelievable you, level of dedication. I think you for, schedule for your posts, right? Yeah. Yeah, I schedule them ahead of time. Um, because of course I live in a different time zone, and I um I know that most of the Succession's viewers are from the U.S., so I like um you know I set them to a time when everybody's awake over there while I'm asleep. <laughs> yeah, specifically the island of Manhattan is where all the Succession viewers are. Just, just oh, clustered, come on. <laughs> clustered right there. Yeah, it's it's right there, and then uh, and then Brazil for some reason. Those are those are the two areas where Succession fans congregate. Don't ask me to explain it, but that's that's where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also kind of curious. Um, we've had a few Canadians on the show, but you know that's still North America. So, like, what your experience as a viewer of this show and a fan of this show has been like, um, you know, so, as a resident of of you know some somewhere that's very very far away from the U.S. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I live in the Philippines for people who don't know, and I've always liked u.s shows i mean we don't want to get into the whole u.s colonial imperialism of our media there but uh yeah i i really enjoy watching succession and dramas like succession and 
it's definitely been hard getting people around me to watch it because it's so because yeah the characters are not very likable to begin with and it's hard to like convince Right. people to watch them but like since it's become super popular and you know they, they give given it a shot and I'm just like sitting I'm like that meme like they don't know that I run a giant succession twitter fan account and I'm because <laughs> like I couldn't even explain it like what do you do Does I your just family post screenshots know? yeah and Okay. my mom my mom actually follows the Aww. account even though she does not watch the show and it's That's just sweet. but yeah they're very supportive even though they don't understand anything which is cool Glad to hear it. Uh, yeah, we have a, a chunky episode to dive into tonight. So yeah, you've really got a, um, yeah, lots to discuss. So this uh, week's episode 3.8 is Chianti Shire, uh, wherein the family attend Lady Caroline's wedding to entrepreneur and seat sniffer Peter Munyon in Tuscany, wherein Logan and Kendall confront each other with Logan withdrawing his offer to buy Kendall out of the family trust and torturing him with reminders of Andrew Dodds' death. We're in a confrontation between Shiv and Caroline renews Shiv's determination to assert herself both in her marriage with Tom and in the company, wherein the Gojo deal is jeopardized by Lucas Matson's erratic tweets driving up the share price, spurring a visit from Roman that leads the acting COO to believe the deal is only possible as a merger of equals, wherein Roman successfully sells his father in the C-suite on the merger, but then instantly torpedoes his position by sending a dick pic meant for Jerry to his father, wherein Shiv seizes on the opening and pressures Jerry to make a harassment complaint sure to oust Roman from the company, wherein Greg courts a duchess, Connor proposes to Willa, and finally wherein Ken ends the hour lowering his face enigmatically into a pool. Uh, so we end, obviously, on a very dark note here. I want to just go ahead and mention up top for anybody who tuned in specifically to get our take on this issue specifically. I think all three of us here right now recording the broadcast, we are... agree that Ken is not currently dead at the end of this episode. Uh, we don't know how that'll change in the future, and we're going to discuss that scene a little bit later, but I think we, we all agree there, right, that, the, uh, this, that this was not the last we saw of Kendall Roy alive this week. Yes, definitely. Absolutely, concur. All right, so we'll discuss that a little bit further down, but I wanted to start with a kind of formalism corner and talk about the direction and the design of this episode. Um, the title... Uh, Chianti Shire is this term referring to this region of Tuscany where a lot of sort of posh Brits have, you know, vacation homes, retirement homes, etc. Um, there's this uh, quotation from the um, profile of Armstrong in The New Yorker from earlier this fall. Uh, it says, uh, for the scene shot in Tuscany, Armstrong wanted to play with the E.M. Forster version of the region, or at least with the visual fantasies promulgated by the popular Merchant Ivory film adaptation of A Room with a View. He said, I just felt it was a fun thing that British people to that relationship to Tuscany and those British vibrations of quite complicated snobbery about an area that has a certain resonance of cultural value for the British. Uh, so it's another one of these, you know, think back to like, this is not for tears last season's finale where we're in this kind of like sun-kissed, very exotic, uh, very lush uh, locale that's like really pretty to look at. And then beneath all that are all these really dark and rotten and ugly family dynamics. It's a it's a very, I think, uh, fun visual conceit. Um, what did you think of the design of this episode, Anna? How did the uh, sort of uh, Tuscany setting play for you? I really liked it and it was just like another example of like how they use 
beautiful settings to just make a stark contrast between the, the, the setting and the character's misery. Like, I really enjoyed how they successionified Tuscany. Like, everybody, everybody was just, like, miserable and squitting in the heat. And, you know, like, it's, it's something that the show does all the time. They make sure that the Roys, no matter how rich and powerful they are, they can't escape certain things like feeling hot and miserable no matter where they are. Yeah, a lot of hats in this episode. You know, we have, we have like, Shiv. Shiv has, like, that enormous hat. Logan's got his, his hat on. Um, but we want to go, um, you know, and, and to talk about the direction of Mark Mylod, who's an executive producer, of course, and director on the show. And he got this season off to a kind of a queasy takeoff, we felt, with Secession, but then helmed what I think is one of the show's best installments, Mass and Time of War, which I think we're going to talk a little bit more about today. Um, but Mylod's honed the show's approach to these large group scenes, you know, thinking in particular of Turnhaven and the sort of tribal council scene from This Is Not For Tears. And this episode has a couple of those, you know, thinking of those scenes where everybody's kind of like outside, kind of like garden party energy. We're moving back and forth between different groups. Uh, but it's largely defined this episode by a handful of one-on-one -on -one dialogues. And that was true of, um, of the season two finale as well, which she's able to dig into with close-ups and get these striking performances. It's interesting to me how some of these scenes that Mylod's directed between Cox and Strong in particular are really simple and don't have the same complex blocking that we sometimes see on Succession, which is, I think, largely due to Strong's aversion to rehearsal and their, their big confrontation scene here is them sitting at a table and it's mostly just this sort of alternating pair of close-ups, right? But I've really come to appreciate how the performances in his episodes and Milo's episodes stand out. And in particular, he consistently, I think, gets the best material out of Sarah Snook. You know, thinking of her meltdown in Turnhaven, you know, the beach scene, and this is not for tears. And there's a, a trio of scenes in this episode, her confrontation that we mentioned with Lady Caroline, where I saw this look in her eyes that uh, Snook sometimes is able to get, uh, that I've described before, is almost kind of like Charlotte Rampling-esque, that sort of mask of hurt that hardens into anger and the, the love scene between her and Tom and then their morning after discussion. We'll talk more about those scenes later. I just wanted to appreciate Mylod and his facility with actors. I really enjoy how the show returns to him to bring each season home. What did you think of the direction in this episode, Gabby, and of those performances? Whenever I hear the name Mark Mylod, I, um, you know, am reverted back to 2011 with the premiere of uh, Shameless U.S., um, he directed the early seasons of that show, which were you know, very critically acclaimed. It's a show that ended up going on way too long, but those early seasons were excellent. Um, and it's a show about working class people. So in that sense, it's nothing like Succession. But Shameless is also a show about an absurd, dysfunctional family that reads as both comedy and tragedy. Um, you know, and Mylod <clears throat> directed uh, these these gangbuster seasons of that show, um, which were frequently lauded for the performance of Emmy Rossum. Um, Rossum plays the long-suffering eldest daughter in the central family who is tormented by her demented father and wrestling with her own demons. And the way Mylod shoots her in those seasons is absolutely critical um, to the show's storytelling, which plays with genre the way Succession does. Um, so I think there's something similar going on here with the way um, <clears throat> that he captures that emotional complexity that both uh, Snook's character and Rossum's character um, embody. Yeah, I love that you bring up Shameless. You know, Mylod has had a very interesting and rather, I, I think, diverse uh, career directing uh, television. 
Um, you know, but a lot of the thing that most people lead with when they talk about his career in TV now is, of course, the six episodes of Game of Thrones that he directed. Um, so I like bringing up Shameless there because those are kind of like kind of pol- polarities, right? If you think of his succession as kind of s- splitting the difference between right. the he- big budget spectacle of a Game of Thrones and the sort of like smaller scale kind of character drama of a Shameless, right? Um, so that's that's a great comparison, and uh, we do also in this episode um, get some new, I think, Bretel cues. Um, I think in the opening scene of this episode, and then in the closing shot as well with Ken in the pool, and then in the middle there, there's a section where Roman is on his um, on the way to the bank uh, when he's on the yeah. when, it, when he's on the way to that meeting. I think it's a new cue we hear in the episode, so we don't always get new uh, kind of Bretel cues. Um, Anna, what did you think? What did you think of these? These the music that we hear. Did they have any tones that struck you as kind of specific to the episode subject matter? Yeah, I'm not a music expert or anything, but the score sounded more like classical and kind of operatic. Even it definitely fits the setting in Italy. And I remember the last time the show did this was in Austerlitz, when Brittel's score incorporated like acoustic guitars to fit the New Mexican desert setting. So. Yeah, I really enjoyed the new score, and I hope they release it soon. Yeah. Oh man, we got to bring back the uh, the Austerlitz score. You know, I really love the yeah the guitars and that. And then um, yeah, that reminds me of how in uh, in episode six of this season and what it takes at the very end, they repurpose that track um, that I think has been part of the score from the very beginning. The track that's called Million Dollar Home Run, which is used to really kind of ominous effect in that scene right. where they're taking the photo with Jared Menken. Uh, yeah, bring back the uh, the Austerlitz strings. We want to hear them. Um, we love those. Uh, so yeah, so that's a, a sort of formalism corner. So we wanted to structure this discussion by talking about some of the themes of this episode and the themes of the season, which I think it can be kind of difficult to do, especially when we're kind of starting out. We're in the middle. This is a sort of a fallacy of the TV recap thing. Uh, you're going week to week. You don't all you don't have the complete picture, right? So you're sort of burrowing down into what's happening that week, but also trying to zoom out and say, what's the big picture here? And I think uh, now that we're almost at the end of the season, some of the overarching plots have begun to pay off some of the season's kind of running threads that may have been more or less visible before now. And I want to start by talking about the Gojo deal, which has been in the background a bit throughout the season and reemerged suddenly last week as the clear, I think, endgame play for the season. But it seems to me to be connected to the season's ideas about historical change, and especially about how those ideas were framed in Mass and Time of War. We've talked about the kind of circular, spiraling whirlpool structure of the season, which allows the writers to explore a number of possible outcomes to this attempt to take Logan down before we actually see, like, you know, decisive uh, plot events happening. We have Ken's kind of grandiose dream of he and his siblings fixing the planet through corporate restructuring. Uh, We have the FBI sweeping in to save the day. Right, Aronson, you know, suggesting maybe we can just nudge the scandal under the rug. And, you know, in episode five, we have that very slapstick, farcical illustration of kind of stasis and indecision and musical chairs 
In episode six, we have the political levers being pulled to keep the status quo in place. And then finally, I think we're working towards the suggestion that the Roy's, this family company, is going to lose control to these algorithmic new tech interests. But largely, I was struck when I was rewatching this episode how Roman's pitch in that meeting to his family and to the C-suite, where they're talking about the idea of not just acquiring Gojo, but a merger with this company, is kind of the mania-free version of that sort of 323 BC pitch that Ken makes in Mass and Time of War. He says, you know, merger's really a state of mind. Dad and Jerry stay with their hand on the tiller. He says their price rise is real. It's a proper streamer. The future is movies, TV, music, games, sports, esports, VR, AR, betting, everything for everyone. And so it's a bet that this new sort of omni-national, super-pumped Waystar can go global, which although it isn't framed in the same kind of like historical or moralistic terms that Ken did, is sort of the same pitch. You know, Ken has said a couple times, you know, hey, Gojo was my idea. And it's sort of funny how they are sort of arriving at a sort of similar maybe version of the future. But Ken's, which was a bit more grandiose, uh, is coming true in this way that's like very banal and may not, you know, turn out so well uh, for the for the actual family control of the company. Um, so how does this play for, for you, Gabby? I mean, do you agree that that sounds like a plausible play for Waystar's next move? Or how do you think this is going to pan out for them? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think this is goes all the way back to the pilot where, where Ken rightly asserts that, um, you know, Waystar needs to look towards growth. All of our mm. graphs go down and um, the, the specter of, of uh, big tech throughout the series um, coming to take out legacy media and we need to do something to differentiate ourselves. Um, the problem with, with Kendall's propositions is, is that, you know, he's never really honest about his intentions um, and that gets in the way um, of, of whatever he's trying to do. Um, but yeah, I, I think it makes sense. I think this finally had to come to come to a head. Uh, Waystar has been sort of you know, they, they get into trouble and they get back out. But um, yeah, if we look at the modern world, everything that, that Roman named in that scene, um, you know, the esports, the, e the betting, this is where the world is heading. Um, you know, I, I think also back to uh, an episode where, you know, I think it's in season one, actually, when Logan's trying to buy like a packet yeah, of yeah. TV stations and Stewie's like, oh, TV, I remember those. <laughs> um yeah, so, you know, Logan has always had this very, like, old-school way of, of looking at, at the business, which is you know, worked for him in large part um, just because of the way that he, he strong-arms people and that he, he knows and understands the world, but the world is changing. Um, and, you know, the kids have always used revolutionary language to, to talk about um, the ways that they're going to change the company. But, yeah, I mean, I think... You know, the Gojo uh, deal makes sense. It fits. And, you know, I, it would be interesting to see what shape Waystar takes, um, you know, when they have to sort of concede actual power. Uh, so far, they've, they've been able to sort of get themselves out of these situations where they would, you know, not be the majority shareholder and so forth. But it seems like, um, you know, Matson is pretty intent on... Uh, you know the 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 equality aspect here, right? He says he's he's a little bit Swedish, which cracks. <laughs> well, me there's up. something there's um. something here about personalities, <laughs> and then the very sort of impersonal idea of like the algorithm kind of taking over. I don't think that word comes up in the episode, uh, but the way that 
this episode also, I think, very intentionally begins with a visit, um, begins with a board meeting where we have Stewie and Sandy, daughter Sandy, back in the building. And something I've talked about before is how the show sometimes treats Stewie. Uh, you know, he's referred to himself before, I think, as kind of like a parasite or kind of like a familiar spirit, right? Somebody who's sort of an empty vessel for a vehicle like Sandy, right? And then we have, you know, Sandy with an eye, daughter Sandy, Hope Davis, who is like literally a vessel for her father, right? She's like, you know, uh, it's what what's the the thing, um, the, the cryogenics thing that Connor talks about in episode two, right? Like Sandy's Sandy's made a younger body for himself, right? Uh, so, th- so there's this idea there, I think, in this episode and throughout the series about the, you know, the this company that represents sort of like the, power and the damage wrought by evil men in the world being sold out to these interests that really are very don't represent specific like vices that can be tied to a person so much as they represent sort of like the invisible hand you know of the algorithm right which is maybe not necessarily that much nicer in the end um and i think that's kind of what this episode is working towards it seems to be setting up i think you know, a new status quo that they could establish in the finale. I mean, the uh, this season, I think, has been sort of a, a fight in a lot of ways, where at the end of season two, everybody thought that, you know, the game had changed, everything was going to be different, and this episode has been a number of illustrations about how, well, maybe not, you know, change is not that easy to bring about, but I think the plot is still kind of, you know, on a narrative level, it's calling out for something big to change, and the discussion of that deal, the specifics, suggests that the family stake is going to be seriously diluted. You know, these C-suite players, Frank and Carl, are going to have to fight for their positions. It's not very much not a settled question whether they're going to still be in those same spots uh, if, if Matson takes him over. And Logan, for the time being, is confident that he can handle these hostile elements, but then there are also signs of further fractures. We saw that Stewie is more pro-Gojo than Sandy was, for instance. So there's all kinds of interesting things there that the show can play with uh, in a second season. I mean, I don't, again, we don't I don't know how much we want to get into the prediction game of what we think is going to happen. Well, also, also Matson is such an oddball. I mean, we can talk yes, about him yeah. more later, but he seems uh, very mercurial, uh, a little bit unstable. And so, you know, it's, it's not like a, a Josh Aronson type who seems to, you know, have his, um, you know, head, head on his shoulders a little bit more squarely. This guy is, is, um, little bit of a loose cannon I mean, we can talk about his scene with Roman but um yeah definitely you know the the impulsive tweeting and you know his sort of nihilistic outlook um is something that maybe could end up hurting the Roys yeah nihilism is one way to put it thinking about that in conjunction with the idea of like Stewie and Sandy being sort of empty vessels in a sense this is a guy who just sort of seems empty right he doesn't have much of a personality he doesn't have things that he wants really he just wants the best of everything for himself yeah and he but he's low-key depressed too you know he's not he's not grandiose about it I mean we, we get to this gorgeous Lake Como estate I was like gasping at how beautiful it was and he's like yeah it kind of freaks me out actually yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) like this is this is a real odd duck yeah and then um and that line about how um 
you know, Logan doesn't know how to deal with a clown, right? And then, uh, and then Madsen mm-hmm. says that, you know, winning's not interesting to him anymore, you know, like capital and strategy and execution. Like, anybody can do that, right? Which is a very, very different outlook than Logan, right? To him, like, battles and winning are everything, and he gets off on that, and that's what keeps him going. Madsen doesn't really care, you know? He just, he just wants to, he yeah. just wants to kind of amass, you know? This is a guy who is, I think, not to put too fine a point on it, but kind of this personification of just this sort of, like, personless personality free just like the raw force of capital and the algorithm that is just sucking up all these companies that's that's sort of the new world order we're heading towards and we know that he doesn't like or respect logan so you know that should be interesting to see how it plays out Yeah, no connection to sort of like the old school media culture this guy's never been to a power lunch in his life i bet uh no 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 reverence for any of this stuff no reverence for logan There are other ideas that sort of surface in this episode uh, that pay off uh, this, these sort of, you know, these classical, obviously, you know, being in Tuscany, we have some echoes of, you know, uh, you know, ancient civilizations there. Uh, But, you know, the references to like Oedipus, and we talked last week about Oedipus and Electra as regards uh, Shiv and Roman, and those come back (laughs) in a big way in this episode. Um, you know, by total coincidence, I've been staying at my parents for a few weeks and my dad's been reading a volume of these Sophocles plays with commentary. We were having a conversation about those. And one thing we talked about was how the Sophocles plays and Oedipus Rex in particular are about the question of whether parentage and accidents of birth determine one's fate. And these are very much the questions of succession is about. And here we see the big three kind of responding to this in different ways. Ken trying to divest completely from the family business, Shiv determining to best her mother and her like actual godmother, Jerry. Uh, Roman being undone by his sexual disorder, which the show heavily implies is given to him in childhood by his parents' neglect. Um, and I'll read this quote from Armstrong again from his profile in The New Yorker. This was a moment, he said, in which his preferred Marxist lens, men and women make their own histories, but not the terms of their own making, proved useful as a way of situating the personal within the sociological. He observed, we're all individuals with our own psychological makeup and impulses, and yet we find ourselves in vices of social and economic situations, which means that we are bent in and out of shape, and we're bent out of shape by the psychologies of our families. So navigating the space between those, that you can act outside of your material interests, but will you? That is a good area for where the conflict between human beings happen. So that question of just kind of, you know, the the circumstances that make people, that make Logan, that make Roman, that make Shiv, um, and how that affects the decisions they make. And if that comes back in a big way, obviously, in this episode where we're so concerned uh, with sort of parenthood. Uh, and these uh, and seeing these characters, I mean, uh, Gabby, what did you think of? I mean, just like the scene between Caroline and Shiv, which uh, I think we need to start to talk about here, which seemed to me to be really kind of the heart of the episode. Yeah, I would say that conversation and and the Logan and Ken conversation, um, similar, uh, you know, parent child lay the cards on the table t- type of conversations. Um, but it's interesting to get more of a glimpse of Caroline. We know Logan quite well. We don't know that much about Caroline. Um, we meet her for the first time in season one at Shiv's wedding, and she comes in hot. Uh, she she coins Greg the egg. She's asking guests how long she gives the marriage. Um, she's obviously not a very good mother and, and shares a lot of traits with Logan. The most striking to me just sort of being this um, 
all these grievances and, and the sort of um, victim complex, which tends to be sublimated at the expense of, of the well-being of the kids. Um, we do know that Logan and Caroline had a contentious divorce, and uh, Caroline is still uh, aggrieved about uh, the terms of, of that divorce. And in this conversation with Shiv, some of that becomes a little more explicit. Um, she says that, you know, Shiv chose Logan, that she followed them to New York, um, and, you know, as long as we've known Caroline, she's taken digs at Logan and the kids and questioned their loyalty to her. It seems to be, um, you know, a real source of, of uh, pain and upset for her. But I think there are also some glimpses of softness that the show wants to kind of tease out um, for her characterization. I, I recalled in uh, prenuptial Shiv's rehearsal dinner, um, Marsha and Shiv are kind of having this f very fraught conversation and, and Marsha ends up calling her a spoiled slut. Um, mm. And as we see Shiv walking away very clearly upset, we kind of catch a glimpse of Caroline putting her arm around her daughter. Um, I think it's totally fair to call Caroline sadistic and whatnot, but like Logan, um, there is love there uh, for her children. It's expressed in, in deeply dysfunctional ways, but it exists. Um, and we also got, you know, some more of that in this uh, moving conversation with Shiv. Um, and I, I think it, you know, this was very much an episode about parenting and it was good to have, uh, you know, Caroline there. And, and I thought, you know, there was an interesting contrast in this episode with Caroline saying that, that she shouldn't have had kids while Logan continues um, to sort of justify his parenting choices to Kendall saying, you know, I took care of all of your messes and you're calling me bad. Um, you know, Logan and Caroline obviously come from from different backgrounds. Logan, a, a working class background, and Caroline, sort of this this upper crust English background. And there's this um, over involvement and enmeshment for Logan with his children, whereas Caroline is sort of uh, the absent parent. And and it's not common that that dads get custody, especially back then. Um, and I think it reinforced just how badly Logan needs to have his children close to him. He needs to have a, a sense of acute control. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with, um, you know, what happened in Logan's childhood and his sister's tragic death, which I will talk a little bit more about later. But, um, yeah, I mean, if you contrast that with Caroline, who seems to be, you know, obviously the more distant of the two, um, she actually does say the self-aware thing, which is that, you know, she shouldn't have had children. And that's something that Logan would never say, even though it's true for him as well. Um, you know, so that was obviously difficult for Shiv to hear. And it's definitely a mistake to own up to that kind of revelation in front of your kid. But it's it's the sort of thing that looms over the show and the parental dysfunction that is, in, uh, you know, just inherent to the project of succession. These are two people who probably should not have had kids because they are damaged and they passed that damage onto their children. And, um, you know, we also get sort of a third generational look at, at this parenting cycle and, and, and what's been passed down in um, what we see um, in the last scene with Kendall and his children. And rather than uh, being out and about in beautiful Tuscan countryside with his children, he is uh, <laughs> laying on a, on a float, uh, drinking a beer and sort of fa falling into a, a state of unconsciousness while his kids are just kind of, you know, playing on their iPads. And it's, it's devastating because, um, you know, 
we know what these kids have gone through and um, as much as they are fuck-ups now, um, when they were children, none of that was their fault. Uh, it's, you know, children are innocent. And so, you know, I think, um, you know, very, very powerful episode for, for the theme of, of you know, generational trauma and, um, and how, you know, that gets um, passed down, even if it's diluted somewhat, right? Like Kendall doesn't yeah. beat, his, beat his children. We've talked about that, but... Um, yeah. Well, it's sort of like a, it's sort of like the Bojack Horseman image, right? Is bringing back the Bojack theme, uh, and also just a funny sort of like, uh, you know, if you think about a lot. There's a lot of stuff in this episode about sort of just like the banality of like the difference between the generations, right? You know, they're in this beautiful Tuscan countryside, and they're having these very like petty conversations with each other. Um, and then just and they're the, always uh, alone, which is so funny. Like, yeah, yeah, you know, Shiv, like at the whatever bachelorette thing, like she's standing alone. Roman is standing alone. I mean, they're just kind of like what Anna was talking about early on. The show just does a good job at, at um, you know, putting the Roys in, in maybe these elegant settings, but um, they never seem really happy at all or connected to yeah. anybody else. Yeah, and I just uh, remembered, I don't know if we're going to get to this now, but I just remember that line caroline said about logan how he never saw anything that he loved that he didn't want to kick just to see mm-hmm. if he could still come back and it's for me it's kind of wild that shiv sort of took it as a challenge and i yeah. think she doesn't want to brand herself as a victim the way caroline does because like some things she also says to jerry later on it would not be a good look yeah i yeah. think think caroline's weakness is, is a turnoff to her and it's it's upsetting and it, it it's disruptive again it's caroline had a moment of self-awareness but it's the kind of thing that violates a boundary in terms of what you tell your kids it actually kind of reminded me i mean a lot of people talked about um the the scene in in sharp objects with amy adams and patricia clarkson and you know they're playing a mother-daughter uh role and clarkson says you know i never loved you it also reminded me a lot of of six feet under which is um, you know, another big family drama, trauma, HBO show um, where the parent, in this case, it's a matriarch, is often sorting through her inner turmoil and communicates things to her kids that are that are self-aware, but that are revelations you should protect your kids from. Um, so, you know, that realization for Caroline is great for, for a therapy session or a chat with a friend, but it wasn't edifying for Shiv. It animated her in a destructive way. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple lines, like, definitely the, um, you know, the line about, you know, shouldn't have had kids almost seems like a, a challenge to shift, right? There's, you know, it's there's these things that you could take them as sort of instances, like, where potentially mother and daughter can connect a bit. Uh, but th- as the show is so fond of seeing people take the exact wrong lessons from things, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I don't rule out that Caroline is being manipulate ma- manipulative there too, is because she knows that that's going to needle Shiv a bit too, because she's at that right. stage when of life says, where that stuff is on her mind. Right? When she says you made the right choice, that you was made the right choice. That was Absolutely. the needling, yeah. Well, so the other big. Like she, you know. The other big line from that scene that I, you know, really that I, you know, that I wrote down was when she says, I don't feel like I've won a single battle Mm -hmm. in my life. And I thought that was such a wonderful line for this episode, because, again, it's very double edged. 
we think about this whole season and what Shiv's gone through, she hears that and, you know, I'm sure that she can relate, right? Because she's been losing battles and taking L's all season, right? Um, she, she definitely has not won anything in quite a while. But there's also that framing there of life as just this zero-sum competition, which is the way both Logan and Caroline kind of view things as a series of battles to be won. Right. right. And and Caroline knows that that's how Shiv is going to take it. And that's how she does take it is, you know, well, I've just got to win the next battle then. Right. I've just got to renew my efforts. You know, another thing that um, came up when I was reading, um, you know, read to go back to the Sophocles stuff is reading about Oedipus and how. Um, Oedipus in that play is sort of undone by not what people would usually think of as a tragic flaw, but, a, you know, his admirable qualities, right? His determination to uncover the truth about this prophecy and his parentage um, that ends up dooming him. And there's a lot in this episode about this sort of refusal on the part of some characters and especially, you know, on the part of like Logan and Caroline to uncover the truth, right? What Logan and Caroline refuse to discuss with their children, you know, Logan is always saying like, I can't get into it right now. He's thinking, what does right. he say in that scene with Ken? Like, let's not put our guts on the table. Guts on the table, yeah. Right. And, and then the whole thing with Roman where Roman's, you know, his sexual issues are all of a sudden made very clear to Logan. And there's a lot of anger in that scene from Logan that I think is, in part, like, this is what I wanted so much not to know about my son, right? This is what I tried very hard, deliberately to ignore and to not know. And so I think that's a, a big thread is just, you know, this sort of uh, wanting to ignore reality, wanting to deny the obvious and, you know, and also just not dig into, you know, the past, right? right. Um, there's that, there's too that, much history. <laughs> there's too much history. You know, I... I, I I, I think that's such a great, and that's the line I think from season two Dundee, mm -hmm. right? You know, like I like the past, but there's so much of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Logan is somebody who definitely doesn't want to go back to his own past. We we have there's so much been implied about the traumas there with evil Uncle Noah, with Rose, the things we don't know about, the scars on his back. Um, and I mentioned in one of our early episodes, I think this season, that line from Benjamin's thesis on the philosophy of history, that even the dead will not be safe from the enemy if he wins. This idea about the forces of capital and empire that are not only antagonists of class struggle throughout history, but are actually opposed to the concept of history and memory. And I think of that as something that comes alive in the conception of Logan's character. Again, as we get to the end of the season, when we start to think in these macro and kind of historical terms about the story, the season is telling about how power changes hands from these sort of old structures of sort of familial dynastic power to the new powers of tech and raw capital and the algorithm. Um, you know, the way that Cox plays Logan as somebody who is equally tremendously confident and alternately, as we see in this episode, somebody who has cavernous blind spots that mm -hmm. are capable of really paralyzing him and undoing him. Yeah, I mean, I think Logan Logan's history is, is a history of brutality, right? I don't think he um, had any examples or models of tenderness. And so this is the worldview that was sort of, uh, you know, fostered in his childhood. And it's the one that he's brought... Um, you know, along with him as his ethos for business and also in his in his parenting style. And I thought in that conversation with Kendall, um, when he's going on about, um, you know, I know things about the world that aren't good. 
And, you know, I wouldn't turn a buck if I didn't know people. This is something that, you know, it's been a common refrain. This is Logan's approach to business, right? That he, um, he's aware of all the dark things of the world. And so he, um, you know, he, he can read situations well. And, you know, I, I just, it's just, it's very, very sad that, um, he, he doesn't see how limited that worldview is. Um, and I also think it's kind of interesting that Logan is, he's actually kind of conflicted too. He doesn't realize in, in this philosophy of the world because he, he, he claims to have created his own reality, right? But then he also says that he understands the world as it is and he's just telling the weather, right? When Kendall brings up the idea of you're evil and you've monetized the rot um, and he mm-hmm. says, well, I'm just talking about the way that the world is. But, um, you know, it also re- re- uh, brings to mind a line when uh, early, in an earlier season when Shiv says, when he says, you know, I didn't make the world and Shiv says, well, you made a small part of it, right? Yeah, I was just thinking mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Logan is conflicted too, and you're totally right. He comes across as, um, you know, very confident, very unflappable, but he has these tremendous blind spots, um, that, uh, you know, are, are limiting him currently in, in business as we've seen for the last couple of seasons. Um, he's really unable to adapt, but that also, uh, completely handicap him in his ability to be a decent father. And I think, he wants to be a decent father. Um, I think that's part of the reason why he keeps the kids so close. Um, mm-hmm. But he has, he doesn't know how to be one. And so he has to tell himself that his uh, philosophy of just, um, you know, cleaning up Kendall's messes or whatever, like that is his way to justify, um, you know, what he has to know deep down has, has, um, you know, been very, very destructive behavior because, you know, yeah, the kids are fuck ups, but kids aren't born that way. Um, you know, they, they, they are, they develop in the image of their parents and you can't blame, uh, children for, for any of that. So, um, yeah. Yeah. It's the, uh, the Larkin line. They fuck you up your mom and dad. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to get too into psychobabble, but but this is true, and you know, we see it time and again, and it's starting to emerge in different ways. Roman's dysfunction, and we're seeing more of more of Caroline. But um, I think it's, uh, you know, Logan will just forever be unable to admit any mistakes that he's made in terms of his parenting. Well, speaking of. Uh... Uh, father figures shall we talk about uh peter munyon for a little bit um <laughs> pip we got a pip pip torrance yeah this is interesting because you know on the on the one hand you know pip torrance um uh who had the role as um tommy lassels in uh, in the first couple seasons of the crown which is a really great performance and he's right. had a really he's had a really good like varied career in film and tv um and so in a sense he's kind of a ringer for this part but he's he's kind of person on this in between right because on the one hand this is a show that is totally capable of just drop of just trotting out adrian brody for an episode and then we'll never <laughs> see him again right uh but on the other hand it's like you could well imagine a pip tour and sort of sticking around because also he's kind of gettable right you know he might he, he might recur for a little bit so we don't we don't yet know if this is just sort of like a one-off thing where um, maybe maybe the wedding will be called off maybe they'll successfully parent trap uh, logan and caroline and 
we, we won't see Peter Money after this season. But it's an interesting uh, plot line. I mean, like the kids having to be concerned for their mother, right? When they're worried about like her assets being at risk. Roman and Shiv asking about the prenup. And then all this I- these ideas that, you know... Peter Money and his suspect because he's a, he's a sort of lower class. He bought all his own furniture, right? He's kind of a, a striver and also a shady businessman at the same time, you know, and there's, there's echoes of the pilot in this, right? When the, you know, the initial conflict being over adding Marsha to the trust where I think Marsha was a lot more mysterious and she really remains mysterious in a right. lot of ways. But here there's this like specifically kind of just like classist, I think suspicion of uh, of Peter Munyon and what he represents and what Caroline's getting herself into. Yeah, I mean Roman mentions that, you know, he did some rat fucking on on Peter Munyon and he's had several bankruptcies, several marriages, several children. He's currently involved in some very shady uh, you know, nursing home group raid acquisition type thing. Um, he confronts Logan about his contacts in the UK government, which was just so emasculating. Uh, just imagine, like, <laughs> your soon-to-be wife's ex-husband, who's one of the richest men in the world, and you're you're asking him for favors at, at your wedding weekend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I immediately thought of, of season one, Marsha and the Change of Trust. Um, and I thought it was funny that on the plane, you know, Shiv, she's sort of in a, in a bad headspace, and Roman is bringing this to her, and she doesn't really care. She's like, she's, you know, well, she's enthralled with his sugar dick. I don't care. Um, it made me think of in the pilot when Ken says, you know, she, uh, about Marsha, she's got her dad and a super max pussy grip. Um, yeah, I think there's some gender differences there. I think it's, it's maybe a little different when it's dad's wife versus mom's husband, right? Roman was so resistant, um, to, uh, to not signing, um, the change of trust, right? Like he, after, especially after Logan got sick. He really wanted to get it done. Shiv didn't. Um, so, yeah. But also the fact that Caroline's assets um, are, you know, very much um, still intertwined with the divorce and with Logan. She also has, obviously, her own assets from her upper class background. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I thought it was it was a funny uh, transition, but it also shows just kind of where Roman is now as sort of um, in in a higher status, uh, more concerned about his position and and his assets and whatnot. Whereas Shiv yeah. has kind of uh, kind of cr- come crashing down, and uh, you know, it's just can't really be bothered anymore. Well, there's a very kind of like obviously psychological and psychosexual reason why Roman would be more amenable to adding Marcia to the trust, right? He fixates on right. his mother figures, and that's why he's so resistant to, to Peter Munyon here. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I mean, Anna, what did you think of uh, of this whole plot line and you know, the way that uh, Caroline talks about Peter? Like, obviously, it seems to me there's a transactional thing going on here, right? Like, she needs some, she needs to marry yeah. somebody else who's got you know, some assets of his own. And, you know, he obviously, I think, you know, is desirous of her sort of like old world, you know, pedigree, mm-hmm. right? I think there's like some comparisons to be made between Munyan and Tom. And I mm-hmm. think that really makes Shiv uncomfortable that, you yeah. know, she's this, there's this social climbing leech who's marrying 
her mom and it's probably a mirror she does not want to look into and it also fits yeah. that he's the he, um um even caroline calls him bridezilla and i think right. mom <laughs> joked about being the bridezilla oh my god um, yeah, when they were right. planning the wedding <laughs> and oh, it only funny. fits that canty shire is where they get married because of their relationship with the you know the british upper class that manyan definitely desperately wants to be part of so yeah he's an interesting character i hope we do uh see more of him yeah i i i love the i love the the comparison to tom you know and the idea that sort of shiv hooked up with tom when she was sort of at a low point right is something that's been often kind of implied caroline doesn't really seem to be in that low point she seems quite sanguine about the whole arrangement that she's making uh but it definitely does seem to be a thing where there's not a lot of respect going that direction from from caroline to, to peter i wonder if he's gonna take her last name as, she as calls him too. she calls him awful which is like <laughs> she's like oh i know i know <laughs> he, he's awful he is obviously awful i can see that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god she's such a she's so funny i mean it's I know terrific she's horrible, stuff she's so funny Again, yeah, Harriet Walter on screen, I mean, for these short appearances, like, it's so, like, we get so little of her, but again, it's a great sense of economy, because all her scenes are just like... Oh, uh, they hit so hard, yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, okay, so let's talk about sort of the meat of the episode, and, um, you know, I've been thinking, <laughs> I was thinking of, I was thinking about Kendall Roy, the immediate controversy that set it over this episode, I was thinking of that is the the onion headline from our dumb century that's like elvis found dead parentheses is elvis alive um that's kind of what that's, that's what i was thinking is kendall dead is kendall alive it's at the same time you know the the teaser for um next this week's finale for all the bells say episode nine of the season leaked a few days before keonti shire aired so i, I had seen it and obviously, everybody's talking about the, about there's that omission where Ken's not in the teaser, right? And that's very pointed. So seeing that, I was like, okay, so they're going to leave Ken in some kind of ambiguous position here. And that's that's indeed what they did. I was leaving him in this pool. And it seems like, it seemed rather obviously to me that, I don't know, it just didn't seem like quite the way that if Ken was going to go out, that he would literally be dying like right here in this pool. Like maybe... Like, we talked a lot about all the suicidal ideation and images of death um, and, like, death wishes that have recurred throughout the season, and especially in, in episode seven, uh, the week before this one. You know, Notorious Ken, ready to die. But it just it didn't seem to me like that was going to be the moment. And inst actually, what it seems to me is it's following up on this context of the conversation that he has with Logan, where Logan, you know, decides to really twist the knife uh, by talking about the, the death of the waiter, Andrew Dodds. And uh, by um, saying, how long was that boy underwater, you know, before he died, right? Two, two minutes, you know, two minutes is a long time. And so that you can imagine Ken, you know, at, at a very low point there, putting his head in the water and saying, okay, can, can I last for two minutes, right? Like, that's, that's what it seemed to me to be going on. Not necessarily that he was dying in that moment, but, you know, it's a very potent expression kind of of that death wish, um, and, I, and so I think we're all kind of in agreement that this feels while it's sort of thematically appropriate and it's apt for Kendall's arc as this moment of despair. You know, he started so high in the season and now he's about as low as you go. Um, but it feels a little bit like a misdirect, like we're, we're not done with Ken yet. Um, 
But I also wanted to look a little bit ahead to next week by talking about the title of the finale, All the Bells Say, which all Succession fanatics are recognized by now instantly as an allusion to John Berryman's Dream Song 29. And I wanted to talk about the significance of this poem within the show because I think it has a meaning that's both thematic and it's a clue to how the writers think about the dramatic structure of a season, right? There's a quote here from a Vulture interview, I think from the season two finale, where Armstrong talks about the poem. He says, quote, It has a terrifying sense of that feeling Kendall has at the end of the last season, talking about the first season, wondering if something could have happened. In Berryman's poem's case, in the end, a death hasn't happened, but it has happened to Kendall. When I was looking at possibilities, that line struck me as pertinent to this episode, to This Is Not For Tears as well. And so we might remember that the poem itself is never actually read on the show, but in the original script for Nobody Is Ever Missing for the first season finale, it was being read on the radio when Kendall woke up that morning after the accident as he turns it on, perhaps expecting to hear a news report, wondering, did I dream that? Was it real? So I've always taken, ever since I first discovered this illusion, the significance to be the submerged or the suppressed thing that underlies the drama the guilt and to an extent the cognitive dissonance that ken deals with in relation to this crime but really that all the characters live with this nagging feeling that their lives are a crime themselves or aberrations of a kind and armstrong names the finale episodes after this poem i think because he wanted to continually return to that idea of the suppressed guilt that underlies all the corporate intrigue and all the bitchery. It's a return to the emotional and moral stakes of the show, and it's the biggest indication, the most explicit one, I think, that they do fundamentally conceive of the series as a drama, and more specifically as a tragedy. And Anna, you've often remarked on this sort of water imagery in succession, which seems to be recurring with Kendall in these final episodes. And so what do you make of that imagery resurfacing in this scene, right? We see Kendall a lot in water, so like after, obviously the car crash and then he takes a bath and in season two on the yacht in the pool and specifically that final that shot in the season two finale where he's looking like christ crucified on the cross it it it's like compared it to the season uh to the latest episode where he's floating on the pool he looks more like a defeated christ like he's on his stomach instead of his back and it's uh, the season two shot. He looks more triumphant, but to me, um, I don't think he's dead. First of all, because um, I don't, I can't see the show without him, without Kendall, without Jeremy, and I think even Logan, to an extent, um, says that he can't, he um, that he can't see Kendall because he wants to keep him close. So I don't think Kendall's dead in that sense, and. Also, the final shot in in the latest episode, it doesn't seem that tragic to me because like you can see the light coming up from behind him. It almost like it's like almost like a glow and like almost like there he's about to move. He's about he's about to get cleansed. He's there's a, something some kind of rebirth going on there, and he's about to move on to the next stage of his arc. So that's what it meant to me. Yeah, another. Um really good piece about the show was written by Emily Vanderwerf this week where she talks about this final shot and the idea that, you know, there's two ways to read it, right? It's just it's this moment of despair, but not a death. And then this actual act of, of suicide where this is the last we ever see of Ken alive. Uh, and she makes this persuasive argument, which I think is the way to read something like this. If you, you know, take away the context of, you know, you know, 
online speculation and trying to parse marketing materials and teasers and see if we can is that a glimpse of ken's head in the corner of that shot is that proof that he's alive so if you take away all that uh this it's it's a compelling image of somebody who is like yeah there's this possible there's this suggestion of death but also the possibility as you outline in of rebirth and what emily writes is when we see him he's both physically alive and spiritually dead how he navigates the vast gulf between those two states of being will be the work of the rest of his life whether that's a few more minutes or several more decades and i mean for for me i've always thought about i thought it would be implausible for ken to die just because thinking about the reality that the show takes place in where these characters, you know, they have so many options available to them to sort of, you know, cope with this kind of cognitive dissonance or the kind of guilt that a Ken is feeling after this experience he's gone through. Right. I mean, just thinking, you know, of analogs, you know, Teddy Kennedy, right. He had a long career after his, after Chappaquiddick, right. He had a long, uh, he had a long career after that. Um, you know, there's all kind. You know, Ken could go to the nut house again. You know, he could. Uh, uh, he could. You know, turn that's what to my his... mom predicted. She said he's going to end up in a hospital. Yeah, they're going to go back and visit him like he's uh, like he's Blofeld or something. You'll just be that, that, that's that'll be a good. That's actually a fun uh, a thought experiment for Jeremy Strong's performance. I think he'd have a lot of fun with that. But that's all, but that so I I always thought of it kind of in that sense. It's like wouldn't in you know realistically you think about it you know, these characters don't really, these sorts of people, these billionaires, they don't really meet bad ends, do they? They just kind of cope and they keep going, right? But they at the toil, same time, yeah. But at the same time, yeah. at the same time, the show has now put in enough work and Jeremy Strong through his performance has put in enough work that I think if they did want to get rid of him in this way, as sort of like dramatically, I think problematic as that is to imagine the show without Kendall, I think they've built it up to the point where, you know, it is believable, you know, to where you might say it, it does feel sort of inevitable with just the, the way that strong acts, the constantly building tension and torment within Kendall. Yeah, I think you could, I think I would buy that at this point if they did want to say he takes his own life. Yeah, it might yeah. end up even being accidental, right? Like, because this situation was accidental. He just got too fucked up and then, yeah. you know, was in a pool and started swallowing water. I mean, I have a feeling he's going to, you know, jolt himself awake in the beginning of the next episode. Uh, there have been a lot of out there theories, but I think if Succession has taught us anything, um, you know, it's it's not to, to expect too much um, in terms of that. I think death is too easy of an escape for Kendall. And... With regards to the title, All the Bells Say, so there's a part there that says, All the Bells Say Too Late, and mm -hmm. I don't think the bells are like necessarily ominous, or there's literally a warning of death. It could be more of a warning that it's too late for Kendall to get out, and for him to leave Waystar and his family with clean hands. So something else is coming for him, I think. Maybe not necessarily death. Yeah, and I think the realization there on that float was that even if he... Um, you know, can assert himself in front of Logan and finally do the brave thing of asking to be bought out. Um, you know, Logan once again, you know, do doesn't give him that satisfaction. I mean, he says he he alludes to the fact that he's really not going to let him get out. Uh, he, you know, we've talked about this closed loop closed loop system and the traps and um how just how much power he has over his children. And I think maybe that's, uh, you know, 
finally, you know, becoming a little bit more crystal clear to Kendall, who previously never would entertain the idea of, of leaving the company and, and now has entertained it, but has seen that it doesn't matter. He's going to be tormented by his father no matter yeah. what. Yeah, and I, I was wondering, like, could he possibly root his actions in atonement instead of just being motivated to piss off and or impress his dad? Mm-hmm. Is that what he's able to do next? Could that be the path he takes? I mean, it's what he's seeking, right? Yeah. yeah. But in a lot of ways, it's like he's kind of in the same position. This is why I think dramatically you can argue it would make sense for him to take his own life here, for the show to write him off here, because in a sense, he's kind of been here before, and we've talked about the show being circular, but it's one thing for the show to demonstrate that these characters are trapped in cycles, and also to just literally put him in the same position that he was before, uh, where he's, you know, he's sort of at a pressure point, and he's got to choose either he's going to, you know, square, he's either going to, uh, atone for his actions, you know, by turning himself in, telling the truth, going to jail, whatever, uh, like he was going to do at the end of season two, versus, you know, turning back, you know, like Orpheus turning back and uh, arming up again for the battle with his father. Um, the choices, I, those are basically the choices to him, right? To go back to the family or to come clean at this point, you know, like those are the only things that he can do. And that's kind of a retread. So I, I do think that, you know, writing him off does kind of solve that dramatic problem. And yeah. while the thing, mm-hmm. I think that those of us who sympathize greatly with Kendall and really like him as a character would like to see him sort of atone for his crime and start to purge some of this weight that's on him, you know, realistically, dramatically in a tragedy. Does that happen? I don't know. Yeah. And I think Kendall dying it would be interesting to see Logan's reaction to that because I'm sure it would echo something from his past about losing Rose, someone he was supposed to protect. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, he has that line about, you know, none of my kids have offed themselves, right? The, right. That, he, that he prides yeah. himself on. It's like, at least none of them have died yet. And, you know, we've seen the times... Of, so and we've And we've <laughs> seen times before where when it does seem like Kendall's in actual danger, you know, like in safe room, you know, like Logan's mm-hmm. really concerned there, right? He's really concerned that something I mean, he gets those, those barriers up right away. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so I do think that that would be something that would probably crack. Again, that's a, that's a big blind spot that Logan has, right? The possibility that's, that, some, that something like this might happen, that his control over his kids is not absolute, that he might actually lose one of them. Right. Um, that, I think, is a, is a big blind spot he has. Um, we've already, um, uh, we, we, we mentioned earlier that we wanted to talk about, you know, um, uh, you know, Rose and some of this backstory that's, uh, alluded to in this episode. You know, I was rewatching this season and reminded how Rose comes up in, uh, when Logan's hallucinating in episode five, right? He says he wants to talk to Rose. Um, but there's a, there's a plot point that gets raised in this episode that I sort of wonder if it might come back you know, in the finale, or uh, might, maybe this will be something we deal with next season, but the implication that some journalists are doing a Curse of the Roys podcast, a sort of Kennedy-style investigation, and as we talked about, you know, the tragic flaw of Oedipus of this investigation uh, that triggers this great cataclysm for the characters, it seems that whether the Roys choose to be part of it or not, such an investigation is, is, is beginning, and those some of that truth is going to be revealed. What did this kind of bring up for you, Gabby, when we heard about this uh, this investigation. Yeah, so the Kennedys are, are not a family we would immediately parallel to the Roys. They're a political family, nominally liberal, 
Although when, when you say Chappaquiddick, like you did earlier, the comparison almost feels comically on the nose. Um, mm-hmm. For those of you who don't know, Chappaquiddick is the Kennedy's real life Kendall waiter incident in short. Um, but yeah, the Kennedys are you know often called America's royal family. They're idealized and mythologized in a way that I don't think we're meant to believe the Roys will be. But who knows? Stranger things have happened. Um, so this Kennedy Camelot mythology tends to paper over a lot of the bad while JFK was in office, both in his policy, but also personally. Um, Kennedy is immortalized as this handsome, charismatic athlete. Um, you know, it's often said that he won the election thanks to those debates with Nixon being televised and his charm and the advent of kind of politics as entertainment. But in reality, he had very debilitating illnesses for which he was constantly medicated. His relationship with Jackie is romanticized. But behind that, there was a ton of infidelity, abuse, accusations of White House sexual misconduct. Um, you know, you can start to see the parallels drawing out a little bit. Um, and I'd be remiss not to mention The Crown, which, um, you know, coincidentally features both uh, Peter Munyon and Caroline Collingwood, that is Pip Torrance and Harriet Walter, um, and that shows Kennedy episode, um, which which those two actors are not in, but um, <laughs> isn't know. it? A, it's it's Michael C. Hall as JFK, yeah, and that like the off, world's worst JFK impression. Really terrible casting. <laughs> yeah, I just I I didn't understand that at all because they usually cast so well on that show. Oh but, my god! But um, contrary to a lot of the pop culture that's about the Kennedys, um, the Crown really faced a lot of the harsh realities of the Kennedy marriage. Um, head on and it really it made the marriage between queen elizabeth and prince philip uh, look like the gold standard of a healthy relationship but um on a more serious note i've always thought about the kennedys when succession <clears throat> brings up rose roy logan's sister um rosemary kennedy was the third child in the jfk generation she was actually born not even a year and a half after jfk was born and rosemary struggled with mental and physical health um, for much of her life and eventually their father Joe who was also you know kind of known to be a little bit of a Logan type uh, you know abusive controlling he arranged for Rosemary to be lobotomized when she was 23 um, she was subsequently institutionalized and more or less incapacitated for her life and this became a source of immense shame for the Kennedy family um, now we don't know exactly what happened to Rose Roy but we do know that something tragic happened to her in their childhood and that she died. And it's an area of major sensitivity and fragility for Logan. Um, she's brought up twice in Dundee. First, when the kids are messing with Rhea and have her bring up Rose in a toast. Uh, and then, perhaps more potently, when Uncle Ewan brings her up at the end of that episode saying that Logan blames himself for what happened to her, even though it wasn't his fault. Um, and as Brenda mentioned, she came up she came up again in this season when Logan's having his uh, piss mad UTI episode and starts naming people from his past. He talks about not wanting Rose to see the dead cat. So uh, this piece of history is obviously something that weighs heavily on Logan, as Rosemary did for the Kennedy family. And uh, I, I definitely have never thought that the the similar names were a coincidence. I, I think that is purposeful. So this idea of, of the Kennedy curse that, that Comfrey brings up refers to the many illnesses, tragedies, freak accidents, untimely deaths, and so forth um, across many generations of the Kennedy family. And I think that the idea of like the Kennedy curse is kind of bullshit, right? Like 
Occam's razor says that when you have a large family, statistically, there are going to be instances of tragedy. But I do think there is maybe a slightly disproportionate level of tragedy in the Kennedy family. Um, And much of that has to do with the intersection of mental illness, generational trauma, and also this insatiable lust for power and status that, um, you know, really characterizes uh, both of these families. So I think it's in that scale of tragedy and ruthless ambition that the Kennedys become a more congruent comparison with the Roys um, and what Comfort was getting at with um, referring to Rose and Connor's mom and the tabloid suicide. Connor's mom, again, also it has been alluded to that there were uh, mental health issues there and she was institutionalized. So, yeah. The, a higher than average number of family tragedies and also a higher than average number of CIA assassinations. Pro- <laughs> I mean, one way to avoid those is to just work hand in glove with the intersection of American capital, American power your entire life as Logan Roy's right. done. Uh, yeah. And there are a couple of Kennedy explicit Kennedy references in the season too, you know, and uh, the disruption uh, Connor says that Shiv's letter is accurate. Like Oswald was accurate. Um, and then in episode oh, six, when he's talking about Connor, Logan says, why not? Joe Kennedy did it for his boys. Right. right? Uh, maybe uh, suggesting that that's not a great road for Connor to go down. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, you, you raise, a, I think all those points are really compelling. I just thought that, um, you know, the whole, po- the whole idea about the, the podcast stuff sparked some other thoughts for me. I, th- I think it's a funny idea that Ken has kind of lost some of his social media juice and is looking for a podcast to stay relevant. Maybe he can do some <laughs> spicy takes about the Beatles. He even asks Logan to spin off the podcast business as part right. of his exit package. And I think there's something to keep an eye on there beyond the implication that potentially he's going to reveal his darkest secret to journalists. And what it reminded me of, too, as I was thinking about this, was the Megxit, right? Like Meghan and Harry coming to America, separating from the royal family, getting a media (laughs) deal, striking a deal with streamers. And that sort of transition between old world luxury and empire and the banality of Mm -hmm. modern celebrity. And that's something this show circles, I think, very much with the idea of Chianti Shire, this gorgeous place filled with these disgusting, posh brands. Brits and crass Americans. And then the joke about the Duchess that Greg Quartz, who's a brand ambassador for a fermented yogurt drink. <laughs> and of course, as we've talked about, the idea hovering over this whole episode that this family business, this dynastic sort of American royalty, they're about to sell out and lose control to this faceless and impersonal tech behemoth. Uh, yeah, so all kinds of interesting resonances there. Um, we've already talked a bit about that scene between Shiv and Caroline, uh, an interesting episode where Shiv perhaps gets her first W of the season. Um, you know, but we start off with her at a very low point, right? Which was re- very alarming to see, right? You know, when we first oh, cut I to that, it, yeah. sh- we, we first cut to that shot where it's like, Oh, she's not, she's not here for the board meeting. Where is she? And she's just like sprawled out in her apartment. Her hair looks terrible. It's like Mondale's in the corner in his pen. Um, and it's like, she's watching a cooking show. Like <laughs> the most, re- the most relatable. Shiv has ever she, been. She's doing. She's doing self care. Shiv is doing self care, yeah. which uh, and mean. they say that she's uh, working on strategy. <laughs> <laughs> working on strategy. Yeah. It's the, well, the, well, honestly, the way my, where my my head first went immediately, I was like, "Is she pregnant already? Is that what is that what happened?" But that's oh God. that's, that's, no, that's no, clearly no. that's not what's happened. But that's a, that's the first place that my that my head went. You know, we talked before about how you know Caroline's getting together with a guy who kind of seems like the British Tom, maybe. 
Um, and we're reminded here of how uh, Shiv got together with Tom and what we're told is a sort of a low point. Uh, and again here, Shiv is not in a good place. So I wonder, yeah, Gabby, if there's a suggestion that maybe these depressive episodes are sort of recurring uh, incidents for, for, uh, for Shiv. Yeah, I mean, I've always kind of uh, felt like maybe Shiv struggles with depression. I mean, it would not be at all shocking, um, you know, given what's gone on in her family and how she's been raised. Um, you know, she, she, she mentions at one point having not been in a good place. She says that again in this episode um, to Tom about her mom when she calls her mom a scary poppins, which is just a hilarious piece of writing. Um, and, you know, she says to Tom, you know, my mom, she knows I'm not in a good place. She's going to ask me how my marriage is and when are you going to have kids? And it's very funny because Tom quickly kind of whispers back and like leans in like, well, how is your marriage? You know? like, he really wants to know because he, yeah, yeah, he doesn't yeah. really know okay. um, because it's not been going very well. And so this very disturbing uh, sexually charged kind of foreplay scene when Chip comes home. Um, yeah, yeah it, it, it was upsetting. It was hard to watch. Um, I know some people found it a turn on. I'm not really sure. I think maybe that's just uh, people's attraction to the, to the actors, but it was a very dark scene. Um, yeah, and it, it felt kind of like an attempt to maybe uh, spice things up with Tom through some uh, you know, verbal S&M, although it made me think of Tom's black eye in season one. And, um, you know, he says, you know, that he was getting freaky with Shiv or whatever, but none of us really ever, ever knew what happened. But it makes me think that um, this might be something that, yeah. you know, they do not to kink shame or anything, but um, you that's know, such an it's, odd it's detail. <laughs> I always assumed that that was like something that happened to McFadden in real life, and they had to write it in because it's like yeah, it's, yeah, it's I, such an odd I detail that doesn't go it. yeah it doesn't go. Oh, he did. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I I really love how the sex scenes in Succession are just always awkward or awful. Oh, totally. Yeah, this I is, mean, it's a, it's a great grim. subversion of kind of like you know the Game of Thrones style um you know porny type of uh of uh treatment of sex but yeah i mean this reminded me of what madeline was talking about last week with displacement um the roys tend to cope through displacement and when shiv is down she can abuse tom to regain some control and um you know we already know this dynamic exists but this was sort of a darker glimpse into it um her saying that um, you know, he's asking her, like, you know, say something to me, dirty talk to me. And her dirty talk is, uh, I'm out of your league. I'm better than you. But that's why you love me, even though I don't love you. I mean, just very, very dark stuff. Um, that happens to ring a little too true for Tom as they talk about it the next day. And I, I thought maybe this would this scene was going somewhere else when Shiv comes home and first says, let's have a baby. Um but then you realize that's a gut reaction to her mom's comment about, you know, you've made the yeah. right choice. Shiv ends up walking it back the next day with the conversation about, you know, banking embryos and seeing where we're at later. You know, there's just very baby disturbing, popsicles, disturbingly transactional. Yeah, baby popsicles. Yeah, thinking a little bit of this is, this is very different scenes, but just thinking a little bit of, you know, the way Ken reacts to Lisa Arthur, you know, you know, spitting some harsh truth at him. 
in uh, in episode six and the way Shiv responds here to her mother's suggestion that you know you should that yeah you made the right decision by not having kids but just immediately responding like I'll show you right like these characters just you know so reactive yeah yeah I can't take any criticism about themselves yeah you say that this dynamic we had an idea that it existed between Tom and Shiv what I read this scene as was Shiv's attempt to as we talk about Caroline reopening the divorce to sort of renegotiate the terms of her deal with Tom sort of right like that's that's kind of I thought what we were seeing here because we were talking a little bit uh in last week's episode about trying to sort of chart emotionally where Tom and Shiv have been this season which has been very adrift and feeling like they're still very much internally trying to come to grips with the fallout of that confrontation and the season two finale and I don't think we got Mm -hmm. a sense that they'd really coped with it and I think this was Shiv's Mm -hmm. attempt to say okay this can't work the way I thought it did where it's this impossible, uh, this, this contradiction where we love each other, but also I have no commitment to you whatsoever. Right. Uh, so we just give up the fiction that we're in love, right? Mm-hmm. We love, like, I love you quote unquote. I love you. Uh, like, like we're attached to each other. Uh, but we also make very explicit, uh, that, you know, for you, the fact that, you know, you're not good enough for me is what keeps you here, you know? And so her, she's basically just trying to make those terms more explicit for Tom to see if that works for both of them. Right. That's, but that seems like a new thing. Yeah. To and, and Tom, Tom has a little bit of a realization where he's like, well, you know, I'm just thinking maybe that I should, you know, take seriously the things you say to my face when we're yeah. at our most intimate. <laughs> yeah. Um, because Tom yeah, doesn't because... want to renegotiate a deal. He wants what he thought was the original deal, which was right. we're getting married and we love yeah. each other. We're going to be a normal couple and have kids one day. He, he That's the, you know, Tom is this kind of like, you know, Midwestern, you know, corn fed, you know, this is an average, yeah. he's an average guy on a certain level. He wants, he wants the picket family. fence and everything. Yeah. And, and this whole idea of her banking the embryos and all this research she did into it clearly and seeing where we're at later. I mean, it's, it's weird. It's it's weird terminology to use when you're in a marriage where you can just kind of ostensibly do it the old fashioned way, right? Like it's not, yeah. it's, we don't have any reason to believe that they have like fertility problems. Like they haven't even tried, but Shiv clearly just does not want to get off uh, birth control. And this idea of just like doing IVF to, to bank some embryos and then see where we're at later. Um, yeah, I just was heartbreaking. Yeah. And, you know, Tom kind of tries to push back, but, you know, he doesn't really, um, you know, and they end that scene kind of, you know, yeah, with this, this joke about the baby popsicles. Well, but they were, yeah. called the, they were called the language of mass and time of war, of the, the love investment portfolio, like how, mm. how transactional yeah. this relationship is. It's very disturbing. Yeah, so people are always um, clamoring for Tom to just divorce Shiv already, but I really don't think he's going to do that. What do you guys think? Because I think divorce is way too easy of an escape. Yeah, I mean, it would be admitting to a failure, and I think Tom yeah. thinks that maybe he can you know, do what he can to appease Shiv, and eventually she'll come around. I mean, again, it's, it speaks to this anxious avoidant dynamic of attachment styles that we've talked about before, where... Um, you know, if he can just say the right thing, do the right thing, you know, he can, he'll, he'll be able to keep her around and eventually, um, get what she wants. And I also do think that he's just, he is in love with her kind of hopelessly. Some of it is cynical because he likes to be part of this world. 
Um, but, you know, that facade is kind of breaking and he's getting more real with the, the stuff about wanting to have a family and what is this all for? Um, yeah, and it's, um, you know, they, they have clearly not um, come to, to any kind of healthy consensus about where their relationship is going. And, um, you know, Tom just kind of has to, to uh, you know, just humor Shiv's whims and, and you know, the, the weird terms that she sets out for their relationship, whether it be her being able to have affairs or them, you know, putting off of having a family because, you know, maybe they'll get divorced. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the way that scene ends, their morning after scene. The way it actually ends is with Shiv, like, play pushing Tom into the water, right? Right, and, after saying, I, you know, I love you, but I don't love you, which I'm, I'm not really sure. What did you guys make of that? Well, I mean, the way I took that was that Tom's arc all season, I think, is one that we still need to kind of have our eye on. This is what I mean when I say that Kendall's uh, potential suicide is a bit of a misdirection. You know, not because I think Tom's going to off himself necessarily, but the show's not not hinting at that, right? Like with the, you know, mm-hmm. shoving him into the water with all the stuff about, you know, how sort of like doomy and, uh, you know, anxious t- Tom has been all season. Um, and the fact that he wins this victory sort of in episode seven, by basically just being passive and hanging in there. I think the show is, I think the plot is kind of calling out for Tom to take some action. And so yeah. I don't know if we see that necessarily by the end of the season, because we don't have a lot of time left, but I mean, you know, just the way that this season has gone, I, I, I think that there's more there. And this is a very, another very passive episode for Tom where he is just mainly listening and trying to, you know, mm-hmm. come trying to come to grips with everything that Shiv's telling him about how the future is going to be for them. But Tom's thinking a lot more about the future, and so I don't, I don't know that he just kind of goes along with this. I feel that there's something else coming there. I hope so. I certainly hope so. But every time I get my hopes up, I'm, I'm disappointed. So <laughs> we'll see. I mean, <laughs> the show has a great way of, you know, uh, and this gets us into our next point and the another big highlight of this episode that we've managed to spend a lot of time not talking about but the show manages to pay off um th- these these themes and these things that it sets up in very unexpected ways in ways that feel inevitable you know you look at the threads throughout the season uh the show lays the groundwork for the sort of major plot developments very clearly but it pays them off in unexpected ways like the running thread about the jerry roman relationship and his deep-rooted sexual issues we spent so much time in the last episode talking you know like is the show building up to some reveal of roman's trauma and his childhood abuse uh, we predicted in uh, in our episode on Mass and Time of War that that meaningful cut between Logan and Roman that seemed to imply Roman would have to fall on his sword for Jerry. Little did we know, right? I've invoked sitcoms, you know, many times this season, not because I think the show is fundamentally a comedy, but because the writers are so versed in the structures and the tropes of TV comedy. They can use them to pay off and enliven these fundamentally, you know, more serious and dramatic narrative arcs. And that happens here with the dick pic uh, storyline because uh, the moment itself is very funny, but it transitions to this painful scene where Logan is confronted with what he's tried very hard to ignore about his son's issues. And Roman also running up against a wall in terms of what he understands about himself and what he's prepared to discuss. So that twist, you know, where I don't, you know, uh, 
Robin types out this text and he puts Jerry's name in it and he puts the photo in there and then he accidentally clicks over to his dad's name. There's a little bit of that that's like lightly implausible. Like, he, is he texting all the Jerry all the time? Is he really going to use her name in the text? And can you actually do that on an iOS? Does it actually just copy over whoever you yeah. were texting to the to the alert you just tapped? I don't know that the phone actually works that way. So the, my first reaction was to kind of roll my eyes in the moment, but I have to appreciate that it's rather ingenious because it pays off this stuff that is like really serious and sad and that's rooted in the storyline in a way that's utterly unexpected and also uh, just inevitable. It's very funny. And the way that and the, those reaction shots of Colkin that everybody has screen capped and tossed around online... I mean, everybody said that's the Emmy tape, and I mean, I I can't argue. It's uh, it's some of the some of the funniest sort of like silent reactions I've ever seen. Um, his lock screen, it's a picture of Shib, and he's flipping her off. Yeah, yeah, and I, I just she's found wearing that really she's it. wearing the dress from the the political uh, forum yeah 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 yeah. Too. yeah. So it's a recent picture. Yeah, yeah. I just found it really funny and cute, but. It also was kind of sad because the rift between those two siblings are growing even wider and I'm very curious as to how to Roman will react to Shiv trying to manipulate Jerry after right. the dick pic situation. Yeah, very rough conversation here between Shiv and Jerry where Shiv is uh, feigning all this concern. This must be really hard for you. I mean, really just disgusting, mafioso light type stuff and, and um, you know recalls to mind the the conversation with the sexual assault uh cruises survivor or she manipulates uh that woman and and shiv really sees her opportunity here you know we see the exact moment when uh logan asks shiv is well isn't this just roman being roman and she's about to say yeah and then she they like you know (laughs) the way the way it's shot she she's she has a realization where this is you know this could be a way to squeeze roman out um but very, very sad. Yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, it was hilarious on its face. But the the conversation with dad and Roman afterwards was was rough. Um, you know, the the are you a sicko? And, um, you know, just his sort of uh, it's interesting to see Logan caught off guard, right? Like he knows everything that's happening in the company and, and with his kids. And that's part of the reason why he was kind of so shocked here. Um, but you see Roman's discomfort and the way that he's trying to justify it is also hilarious. Like, yeah, it's just a pick of my dick. Like sometimes you just, you know, people, people send pics of their dicks, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, the dialogue, and- the dialogue's really funny, but I mean that, yeah, but Colkin's performance is really, it is really affecting to me just because, yeah. you know, he's really good at like, what's the, he calls himself, you know, like he's like, he looks like a matador, right? He's good yeah. at. He's good at his body language, you know, like he really uses... He's a the, bendy fuck. <laughs> he really uses the whole instrument, Culkin does, right? You know, because mm-hmm. he's, you know, we saw in the last episode him kind of perching on the back of that chair. And he wanted to give himself some height and lord over his siblings, right? And here, but the, here there's just so much with like, he's sort of like squirming, but also just this tightness. You can really see him like clenching up and going like, yeah. this is something that I am absolutely not prepared to talk about because there is so much stuff that's like suppressed there that if like you just pull on that thread of like dick pics and the whole thing just kind of is going to start to unravel um so i I did find that scene to be although it's it's pretty funny to hear logan say are you a sicko you know there's a lot there that is really just suggestive of how much has gone on said and deliberately ignored by both of these men about each other and about themselves right 
Yeah, yeah, and I think Logan must be really affected by the fact that it's happening in his inner circle, which he he's pretty confident he always has control over. Yeah. Yeah, and I was thinking about, um, you know, Everett's called shot in, back in our episode of the disruption when he brought out that reference about tumble down dick, right? Which, which, you know, which is what Logan says to Roman, referring to Richard Cromwell, who has a brief but sort of disastrous, uh, you know, and ultimately doomed uh, reign as Lord Protector, right? To uh, following in the footsteps of his father. That's kind of what happens to Roman. He's got this moment in the sun where he's got the catbird seat. Uh, and it, it it comes apart, unfortunately, for him pretty quickly. That's not a, it's not a very long reign that he has. Yeah, and it's over something so <laughs> so silly and so avoidable, right? Like he ended up actually kind of making a good case uh, for the Gojo deal. He sort of sealed that. I mean, the whole the whole conceit started with Jerry texting him saying "good job" and Dad saying "good job." Um, you know, but yeah, these, uh, the, the show has clearly been, uh, tugging more on the thread of Roman's, uh, sexual issues and possible abuse. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm really scared. This this I don't know what's going to happen, but yeah, the, yeah. um, the way that they were very restrained, the writers with the Jerry and Roman stuff, and they never made it too absurd. And Jerry is kind of asserting boundaries throughout this season to Roman saying, I'm dating. Um, you need to accept that. At the beginning of this episode, she tells him to stop sending the dick pics. This is the first time we learned that, that he's doing that. Um, but yeah, it, another thing that just was so surprising while it was happening, but totally inevitable in retrospect. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, this is something where we don't know how this is going to shake out in the next episode, but they're certainly setting some things up here in terms of if they really want to upset the apple cart and change things for the next season, this gives them a lot of options because not only do you have, you know, Roman potentially out at number two, but potentially out of the company. If Shiv successfully pressures Jerry into making this harassment complaint. I mean, we talked about like, you know, what is the reception? What would be the sort of public reception if, you know, the, all the facts about Jerry and Roman's relationship were to be made public. I think, you know, despite the fact that it's consensual, you know, and as much as we all like the relationship, I think if you're reading about this on the news in the context of the scandal that Waystar is going through, this is like a nuclear grade terrible. Like, I don't think that either of them career wise survived that. So really Shiv's Shiv, you know, cannily and I think correctly observes that, you know, Jerry's in a pretty vulnerable spot and she may not have a lot of options if she wants to protect herself. And that, you know, by, you know, lodging a complaint and saying that it was unwanted, she can maybe protect herself um, at the cost of, you know, Roman getting bounced out of the company. Um, but at the same time, so that's that's a lot of things that could get upset for next season and the next episode. You know, we think about whatever reshuffling happens with the Gojo merger. Do we have Shiv in at number two and Jerry also still in the company? But Shiv got a little bit of leverage over her because of this incident now. But at the same time, Shiv's not as smart as she thinks she is. And Jerry's pretty crafty. So I, I, I suspect that this is not going to go quite the way that Shiv thinks. But there's a lot of options for them here. I did think it was interesting, too, how um, there's, you know, Logan also brings up Tabitha in this episode. And Tabitha, I think, was mentioned for the first time all season 
in the previous week's episode and yeah. too much birthday in the vaginal canal in the vaginal canal when shiv asks you know where's tabs and roman seems to imply that they haven't formally split up but that it's just kind of boring for him so i thought it was interesting <laughs> which is so funny because <laughs> tabitha is anything but boring like right <laughs> in terms of what in terms of what roman wants maybe i guess uh but yeah. uh, but i thought it was interesting that they bring her up not just because you know it, it could potentially be teasing a return of Caitlin Fitzgerald, which like, yes, please. We love the character. We love the performance. It'd be great to see her again. But also I just thought it was interesting that they're bringing her up, you know, Shiv and Logan are both bringing her up and why that is why, uh, and uh, why the show wants us to be thinking about her. And I, you know, and I think it must be probably rather unusual for Roman to have kind of a steady girlfriend and uh, they're and and they're really wondering it's like, oh, man, you know, it seemed like it seemed like you were getting normal for a minute. Right. <laughs> yeah. Logan's misogyny rearing its head and asking what happened to that nice piece of tail you were dating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just more of Logan's prejudices, homophobia abound, asking, you know, taunting Ken with the question, are you queer? Um, uh, I, I think Anna, you you recall? Did we talk about this earlier? The line from Prague, right? Before the bachelor party, Logan told Greg that to keep an eye on Kendall because I don't want him showing up dead at the bottom of some French fags pool. Oof. Which and then is you, yeah, scary. Mm. And then you know, I never figured you for a faggot this season. The disruption, um, yeah. And just old school homophobia, and and I also kind of thought it was interesting when he, you know he's he mentions that he's disgusted by Roman and Jerry because she's a million years old, like <laughs> like as if it would have been any better if it was some you know young hot assistant like Carrie or something you know right yeah. like oh she, she's old how gross yeah the show definitely is playing a lot more this season with Logan's prejudices. And I think in this episode, you know, especially in that scene with Ken, where he espouses, as we talked about, a very dark worldview, um, he is about as villainous as we've seen him be, as he tends to be when he's in moments of kind of triumph, right, as he thinks he's triumphing over Ken. Yeah, I also just wanted to note that Logan's very cold treatment of Kendall's kids, his his yeah. grandkids, like... He has never acknowledged Sophie. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that it's because she's a girl and she's not white, um, most likely adopted. And, um, you know, he kind of calls Iverson out to test the food, I think, in this, you know, sort of sick humor, yeah. poisoning thing, and then just kind of like sends him back away and is like, you know, Carrie has gifts for you. Again, just like the the um, currency of love uh, coming in the form of, of gifts or and whatnot, but but he has no relationship with them. It's it's very sad, and it was sort of cruel how he called Iverson out to to play this joke on on Kendall. Yeah, it the whole dinner with Logan and Kendall, like they were like trying out different alpha moves, like mm, Kendall just yeah. organizing the shit out of another event, um, telling him which plate to eat. And then, of course, Logan had to fire back and bring Iverson in. And I definitely don't think he uh, thought that the pasta was poison, but definitely just to show Kendall that, yeah, hey. Don't got, try anything. Still, yeah, don't try anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he also, has that, he also has that line where he asks if Iverson's getting better. So that was kind of right. a, a which that was kind of a cool thing to say because I think what's been implied about Iverson is that he's you know neuroatypical or on the spectrum, right? So that's that's kind of a, a bizarre thing to ask. 
it's not even just bizarre. It's just the fact that he doesn't know. Like, he just yeah. doesn't give a shit. Like, children yeah. to him are ornamental. They're appendages. Um, it's part of the reason why his own kids are so fucked up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Kendall really wants to be better than that. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, he's limited. Well, we're running rather long here. Um, we want to, I guess, talk about uh, a couple of minor characters um, before we wrap up. Uh, there is uh, another sort of engagement in this episode with uh, with Connor and Willa. Uh, where Connor asks Willa to ask him, you know, the happiest man slash the most bulletproof candidate in the world. I don't know what his fantasy is of what's going to work out. Like, once they're married, it's, like, improper for people to find out that Willa has been a sex worker in the past. Like, nobody's going to ask about that in that case. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's it's funny how just, it's, it's always funny just to see them, you know, and see Justine Loop as Willa contemplating new frontiers in that relationship, right? It is further levels of commitment, no longer just a sugar daddy, no longer financing her plays. Uh, I loved, I, like... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Just but, but, but being, like, formally, legally tied. Like, this is something where it's, like, still thinking. That's a It's a thinker. Still, you know? still thinking about it, yeah. I loved, like, the tepid applause when <laughs> that proposal's <laughs> happening, and yeah. then Connor's, like, grazie mille. <laughs> trying to fit in culturally very connor move yeah yeah and then willa said at first she thought he was about to like break up with her or something and then she said she was excited about like going back underground yeah oh man yeah i mean i don't think they're getting married i don't think they're getting married but i think they're gonna stick together one way or another i mean i hope so yeah, I, she's, she seems more them. committed, but this is maybe maybe a bridge too far. I mean, in show yeah. in show terms, I just think I think the show has no interest in breaking them up. Uh, right. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's just funny to see them sort of contemplate new complications here. I'm suspecting, you know, again, we were talking so much about what next season's going to look like. Um, I think we're probably building up to, if not a presidential election, then the pr- presidential primary is going to take up a lot of business. Mm-hmm. We probably maybe get a sequel to what it takes and we see, you know, maybe the actual Republican convention. And that's probably where we'll see the return of, of Jared Mencken, if I have to hazard a guess. But yeah, Con- Connor's presidential ambitions, I don't think are going away. They're going to continue to be a running threat. Um, and just, again, sort of an option there for them to pick up if they want to make that a more sort of serious plot point. Um the uh, uh again the greg business in this episode um I, we were i was joking before about how we've managed to make several references to our second favorite tv show vanderpump rules on the last few episodes of this <laughs> podcast and uh i instantly clocked the scene where greg is talking to tom and shiv about uh his love life as like the scenes in like the later seasons of Vanderpump where like the Toms are like feigning interest in whatever stupid storylines the new cast members are involved in. Just like, yeah, let's just, let's give some cheap heat to uh, the cast members who are just like clearly right. on life support and need airtime. Like Greg is very much in need of airtime right now. Yeah. I just, it's not really clear to me why he's there, <laughs> why he's at the wedding. Yeah. Just as it wasn't clear to me exactly yeah. why he was at uh, the Future Freedom Summit, you know, it's it's a little bit, you know, his presence is beginning to, to sort of lightly strain plausibility. I don't know. Yeah, even like his scenes in this episode, I really found it amusing that he was trying to appear concerned over the Matson tweets, like pretending to understand right. what's going on, like scrolling his phone and just scrolling Jerry's phone, like he's yeah. trying to seem invo- involved. Yeah. I get- yeah. He try he tries to to put himself in, in these positions where like he thinks people might value his opinions and yeah, it's been a weird departure for me because in the end the final episodes of seasons one and two, 
Greg actually ends up kind of uh, becoming more instrumental, right? And then he's kind of just adrift now. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, it was nice for Shiv and Tom to bond and have a laugh at his expense. But um, yeah, I don't know what they're going to do with him. Yeah, I like uh, I liked Tom's line where they're making fun of Greg's sudden concern that Comfrey doesn't have enough depth for him. And Tom <laughs> has that line about, too bad Sontag's not still alive, you could take her to the drive-thru. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and again, courting a, a brand ambassador slash duchess. Um, I don't know, I mean, without, <laughs> Greg, without his inheritance, without that cool five mil he was counting on, you know, I don't... I don't know what he has to offer the the duchesses of uh, of of Chianti oh, Shire. Wait, he's still he's still suing Greenpeace. Maybe right. we'll find out what happens to that. <laughs> That's, I don't know. Seems like a long shot to me. <laughs> without the without the five million, I mean, how's he going to afford better lawyers than Greenpeace? I don't I don't know. Yeah, and then we do have uh, we we have kind of uh, talked around this scene with. Alexander Skarsgård's Lucas Matson a bit, who again, as we sort of speculated in last week's episode, there are traces of an Elon Musk here with the kind of erratic tweeting, you know, driving up the stock price to the point where, you know, he might be too big for them to acquire straight on and they have to approach it as a merger of equals as Roman conceives it. Um, but yeah, this character, yeah, definitely not not a straight Musk analog or anything like that. But there are certainly elements of that, and, and elements of that just sort of also like the new agey drug stuff. Like yeah, a, yeah. I ayahuasca big gulp. <laughs> yeah, some sort of a lot of Silicon Valley tropes kind of mixed right. around in there. This is definitely a character you could. This is definitely a guy from like the Billions crossover world. Right, that <laughs> you can definitely imagine him as fitting in in both of those shows. Uh, yeah, I mean, Anna, what did you think of this scene? That very, what is it? They're at Lake Como, I think it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. What 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 did you make of the dialogues here, which is very kind of cagey between him and Roman? Yeah, I, I found his one of his lines very interesting, where he talks about like he he's more into failure, just as much failure as possible, as fast as possible, just burn that shit out. That's interesting and. For some reason, it reminded me of what Naomi said in season two to Kendall, watching you people melt down is the most deeply satisfying activity on the planet. So like on a meta level, when characters in succession fail at what they intend to do, it just makes the show more entertaining and the characters more interesting. So yeah, it, yeah. it's funny that he brought up failure, like as if the Roys have not <laughs> seen their fair <laughs> share of failure, right? <laughs> Maybe that's why he actually chose them you think? maybe yeah <laughs> well again it's that big counterpoint to logan for whom winning is everything right and mm -hmm. and and matson is very much opposite to that and and i think it's it's not so much you know the musk stuff and this sort of like anarchic and like lack of respect for the discipline and the customs of this sort of big business world and the media world that they're from. Uh, but yeah, this sort of scary sense that, you know, he doesn't really care on some level, that the stakes are kind of immaterial to him. That's yeah. that's a kind of scary possibility there, too, that this guy is like, he's he's no longer interested in making money. He's, he's, he's content to just kind of fuck things up for people. Um, that is... Again, you know, he may not be a clown necessarily, uh, as uh, as Logan says, but he is, as Roman puts it, a motherfucker, and that 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 may be something that Logan finds more difficult to deal with than he expects. 
So is there anything that we haven't covered here? We have run pretty long. Um, I think we covered a lot, most of our good, most of our points. I think, do we want to go around and say anything that we forgot to talk about from this episode? Um, any favorite lines or moments? Anna, anything that comes to mind for you? Oh yeah, I just really enjoyed Kieran Culkin's performance in this episode. Like the way he's just squirming the whole the whole time and the parallels of being over overprotective of his mom and Cherry. Like the 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 same scene where uh Caroline dismisses his concerns, immediately his his attention, his eyes land on Jerry with Lori and he's probably freaking out that he's losing control over like these two mother figures mm -hmm. it's just so funny yeah yeah when he shakes laurie's hand he's like laurie how the hell are you <laughs> colkin has been great these last few episodes i mean it is going to be a scary emmy race between him and mcfadden for sure yeah they're gonna split the vote uh god i'm scared <laughs> it's gonna be ted lasso uh <laughs> Uh, maybe a different category. Uh, G Gabby, uh, any any favorite um, lines or moments for you? Yeah, I, I liked uh, when Kendall's talking about like the terms of his buyout, and he says he wants to keep Jess, and also Ficret. Shout out to Ficret, who uh, we see yeah. really like the the first scene yes. of the pilot. One of the Kendall's first driver. lines of the series. This is the day we make right. it happen, Ficret. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So uh, Kendall keeping his driver, and I also liked um, the sort of <laughs> regional joke of of. Roman asking uh, Ken, where are you off to? Naples to score some junk. Um, Naples being known as sort of the, <laughs> the seedy mafioso part of, of Italy. Oh, no. Yeah, I, th I, think, <laughs> I think my only other note was something about Jess also. I just thought it was interesting that it's Comfrey who accompanies uh, Kendall to Tuscany here, perhaps in a sign of his kind of shifting priorities that he's more concerned basically with how to stay in the conversation at this point he has more need for a for a pr representative than somebody who knows right. his needs um also as, no as naomi also yeah. no naomi yeah i mean again things didn't look great for that relationship at the end of too much birthday uh i don't know how much we want to read between the lines there but um i'm guessing that her 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 absence from tuscany is probably not a sign that things are super stable in that relationship yeah i think if jess was there kendall definitely wouldn't be in the pool like that <laughs> yeah the nanny was there though the um we did see the, a nanny. the nanny the nanny yeah. from the, the phone call uh about the, the rabbit yeah gave the bagel the to the moment. yes <laughs> <laughs> bianca yeah. Okay, well, I think that about wraps things up for us. Um, Anna, it's been great talking to you. Um, I think we have covered where folks can find some of your work, but uh, would you like to tell folks again and anything else you'd like to plug? Uh, yeah, first of all, I just want to thank you guys so much for having me. I mean, allow me to be earnest here, and I just want to say that you've been putting so much care and thought into the show and I think it's just really cool that you guys allowed me to be a part of it. And it's just been great chatting with you. And Oh, yeah. it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you <laughs> so much for the kind words. Seriously. Yeah, of course. Very sweet. Yeah, so yeah, so if um the listeners here are not yet following No Context Succession, <laughs> it's uh, at No Context Royco. I'm trying to think of that person who's on Twitter and likes Succession and is not following your account. You'd be surprised. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the accounts they suggest to you when you sign up. It's like Obama, St. Vincent, and No Context Royco. 
Yeah, and meanwhile, I'm on, uh, I'm at WasteTarCEO on Twitter and Instagram, where I rant about Succession and the former, and post pictures of my cat on the latter. <laughs> Very cute cat, yes. Well, thanks once again to Anna. Thanks to Gabby. Thanks to our producer, Dan Black. Everyone listening, if you've been enjoying the Roycast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a few seconds to leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. Um, the Roycast is a passion project. We do incur minor ongoing expenses related to the production and hosting of the podcast. Uh, we have no intention of paywalling the show, but for anybody who'd like to contribute, there is a square link in the show description. We will be back next week uh, to discuss the season finale of season three of Succession. Can't believe I'm saying that, but it's almost here. Um, and I uh, hope everybody's prepared emotionally for this week's episode. Um, we promise to uh, bring the heat in our analysis next week and uh, hope you folks will be tuning in. Until then, everybody, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.